This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And we'd like to wish you a very happy new year and uh, happy holidays, whatever you celebrated, are celebrating, or will celebrate. Uh, We hope that this new year and this holiday season are joyful and meaningful for all of you. Yeah. Jeopardy is in reruns this week, uh, featuring some of Alex Trebek's favorite travels. And uh, rather than recapping those, we thought we would bring you something special uh, from our back catalog that we keep harping on. <laughs> That's right. Uh, given that we have brought it up a number of times, uh, this seemed like a good time to bring back a couple of deep dives that we particularly enjoyed from just about a year ago, actually, right, right around the end of the end of last year, beginning beginning of twenty twenty. So we're gonna have those two deep dives and quizzes coming up. Uh, but next week, we will be back with a regular episode. Uh, it will be the last week of Alex Trebek's uh, recordings, and mm-hmm. I'm given to understand that Friday's episode will have a tribute of some kind to Alex. We don't know what that'll look like, but. It it seems fitting, being his his final appearance, uh, that there will be something like that. Absolutely, and then we I guess we go on into uh, episodes hosted by Ken Jennings. So, Man. lots happening in the Jeopardy world right now. Mm-hmm. It's a tender time, I guess, for everyone. Um, but yeah. I think it's going to be it'll be good to see. Yeah, I I think so too. Yeah. So yeah, happy New Year. Yes, we made it to 2021, uh, but not to not to be a downer or anything, but remember uh, the things we are pushing for and trying to make better in this world still need that push and still need that work. So once again, you can still check out uh, communityjusticeexchange.org or blacklivesmatter.com to continue supporting social justice and uh, keep wearing your mask, even if you get a shot. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean everyone else did. Yep, that's right. So uh, let's head into a couple of deep dives. Uh, This is my deep dive about the bathysphere. Uh, This was one of my favorites to prepare. And then we'll hear Kyle's deep dive about Edgar Allan Poe. That is right. So we will see you next week. The sphere of science category. Oh, so I was um, even in the so right you were, category. Yeah, you were in the right category. But I actually ended up... Normally I try to do either like a, a missed daily double or triple stumper. Um, or or if not that, then a, then a daily double. But in this case, I started researching a bunch of different things. But the one that really sort of caught my imagination uh, was at the $2,000 level. Um, hmm. The clue was... On August 15, 1934, this craft with sphere in its name took two men 3,028 feet underwater, a record that stood for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, the correct response there, which Barbara got, was the bathysphere, which I had not heard of until I started researching it. Is this something that's familiar to you? I, I know of the bathysphere. I don't really know much about it, though. Yeah. Um, so so we're talking about the, the bathysphere, which 
which was a spherical deep sea submersible lowered on a cable into the ocean to um, uh, study and observe um, the deep sea and deep sea life. So uh, there are two minds behind the bathysphere. I'm I'm now I'm reading a book about it, although I ha- I uh, didn't get all the way through reading an entire book <laughs> uh, <laughs> since since Tuesday. Um, um, so there's two minds behind the bathysphere, and they are Otis Barton and William Beebe. So Otis Barton is an engineer. He's kind of Massachusetts, sort of um, high society, and had sort of showed an interest in the ocean and in diving from early in life where he was like making contraptions. I think he was, his family would, would summer in like one of those like Massachusetts, like beachy places. Um, might be Martha's Vineyard. Ooh. And he would like invent contraptions to like walk around on the floor, uh, uh, like the ocean floor, like not super deep because that was like a, a technological problem. And he was like, like a teenager, um, uh-huh. but you know, trying to trying to sort of figure out this problem of like getting like down deeper in the ocean, like even from from pretty early in life. William Beebe was kind of a famed naturalist. Um, he oh. he was doing all kinds of like exploring and observing and writing about it. He was closely connected with the New York Zoological Society, I think it was called, um, what's now like the the Bronx Zoo and its related organization. And uh, he had done all of this work with, I think, like jungles and birds and then sort of pivoted to to announcing that he was going to start studying the ocean. And he was sort of like a public figure, like people were interested in what he was doing that was like sort of uh, made news. So he was going to um, start studying like the deep sea and he was going to be working from Bermuda. Okay. There was history around, um, you know, trying to get deeper into the ocean. Historically, people had used diving bells. So the idea is, you know, you have this sort of contraption that like captures an air bubble and brings it down with you. And uh, early divers would come down in the diving bell and then you would sort of duck out of your diving bell, swim around for a little bit, duck back into your diving bell and you'd have a bubble of air and you could you could breathe in there and explore a little bit that way. One of the limitations there is that human lungs can can't get much deeper than about 200 feet, no matter what you do, um, if you don't have some kind of protection from the from the pressure. Yeah. In the mid-1800s, um, Edward Forbes had hypothesized that life simply was not possible below 1,800 feet. But in 1860, the telegraph had been in- invented. There were, there were, you know, there were telegraph cables um, along the ocean floor, um, and they needed to raise the Mediterranean telegraph cable for repair. It was at a depth of, of about 6,000 feet. Oof. And uh, they brought it up and found like sea life, like traces of sea life attached to the cable, which uh, revealed that life was possible much deeper than anyone had previously realized. So uh, in 1872, Britain had um, attempted a scientific like expedition to try and understand deep water life better. The ship, the HMS Challenger, spent four years on this um, 
trying to like find deep sea life with whatever methods they could. They tried using like uh, like super deep nets, using like weighted lines to try and measure the depth of the ocean. And one of the problems that they encountered is that they were able to find some life with these nets, but deep sea life that is adapted to the super high pressure ocean environment, when they would try and pull it up, like the like the fish couldn't survive the lower pressure environment. And so oh. like the the cells of their body would like individually like explode. And so they would pull up this net that would end up like basically covered in like fish goo. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. So and in 1875, uh, the HMS Challenger discovers the deepest known place on the ocean floor. I think deepest known at that time, but I think also they were pretty close to still the deepest known place on the ocean floor. Um, hmm. So there's this problem that like we're curious about this deep sea life, but we can't bring it up to look at it and we can't get down to it. Windowless submarines had gone down to 328 feet. A human in an armored suit had gone down to 525 feet. Um, yeah, but William Beebe wants to wants to find a way to get lower and learn more about the deep sea. Um, and he's like this famed naturalist. So he announces that he has a plan to try and explore the, the deep sea using a submarine or like a not not a submarine, a, like a cylindrical kind of um, submersible. I think his plan was like one and a half feet by seven feet for this like like canister basically that he would be lowered into the ocean and to to like do his observations and there's an article about this in the new york times which is seen by otis barton guy who's been like as a teenager kind of inventing ways to get like deep you know into underwater in the ocean and barton tries to contact bb but bb is like so like deluged with like fan mail and um well-intentioned people with you know with ideas that aren't going to work that he's like pretty much ignoring his mail at this time but there is a mutual acquaintance who arranges a meeting between the two of them and barton has like an engineering solution for bb's problem part of the problem is like all the existing like submarines and submersibles are like roughly cylindrical and Barton thinks that they're going to need a sphere to withstand Hmm. the pressure of the deeper sea. Interesting. So the two of them come up with this deal. Um, Otis Barton is going to pay for the construction of the bathysphere and the related equipment himself. Beebe's going to pay other expenses. Most notably, they need a ship that's going to like, lower and raise and like drag the thing around and Barton gets to come along on all of the bathysphere's like descents nice yeah so they get started on constructing this thing it is a steel sphere uh they had initially planned to have three windows um but they end up with uh going with two windows the windows um are made of fused quartz there's at this time there's no glass that's going to that Barton thinks will be able to withstand the kind of pressure that they're talking about. It is 4.75 feet in diameter. And the whole thing is spherical. So there's no bench. There's no level floor. Um, They're going to be just sort of sitting on this like concave floor. They bring canisters. They're going to bring canisters of oxygen down with them. And then they are, they're going to have like these trays of chemicals 
out uh, soda lime and calcium chloride, which are supposed to absorb the carbon dioxide that they're exhaling. And then they're going to use palm frond fans to circulate air within the bathysphere so that, you know, so that the, the oxygen and the carbon dioxide sort of all, you know, like, they, they, I mean, they have no, they have no uh, sure. circulation system, but the palm right. frond fans, that's their plan. Um, <laughs> and William Beebe has a station on Nonsuch Island in Bermuda. Um, okay. That was going to, going to be kind of their home base. There's an initial sphere and the problem is that it is too heavy for the winch that they've been able to procure. Uh. Yeah. So, but they end up finally with a final version that they're going to work with. It is, uh, the, it is cast steel. The steel is an inch thick. It weighs 2.25 tons on land, although, you know, in the ocean, that's significantly reduced. And they have 3,000 feet of steel cable, which weighs an additional 1.35 tons. The sphere is manufactured by Watson Stillman Hydraulic Machinery Company in New Jersey. Uh, the cable's made by John A. Roebling Sons Company. And the spotlight is from General Electric. Uh, th- so there's a spotlight. They're, they're going to spot- shine a spotlight out one window and look out the other window Ooh. for visibility. And, and they have a telephone to communicate with the boat that will have the cable. Telephone provided by Bell Laboratories. Inside the sphere, they are completely shielded from the pressure of the environment around them. But they know that um, if there is like even a pinpoint leak, the pressure difference is so huge that water is going to like the like the spray of the water coming in um, is potentially deadly. You know, let, let alone <laughs> the drowning and stuff. Right. Yeah. So their initial dives are conducted um, uh, from the deck of a former British naval ship called the Ready. And then the ready is towed by a tugboat called the Gladys Fen. And they've got a couple of assistants who uh, keep showing out, showing up throughout this project. Um, John T. Van was an assistant to William Beebe, like throughout his, uh, throughout his professional life. They'd been working together since long before this. And his job is to kind of coordinate between the, the two ships, the, the tugboat that's pulling and the ready. And then another assistant who's really key in this project is um, woman, Gloria Hollister, who is in charge of um, communicating with the bathysphere and like taking notes based on whatever they're saying into the telephone. Okay. In May of 1930, they make their first dive um, just down to 45 feet to test it out, uh, which is successful. And then they send it down deeper, but unmanned. And there are some technical problems with like cables tangling which they man- managed to resolve on on another unmanned dive. And so in June of 1930, they do their first deep manned dive um, down to 803 feet. Yeah. And then throughout that summer, summer of 1930, they continue to do uh, deep dives to observe ocean life, um, as well as what they call contour dives where they're sort of mapping like the, uh, the underwater terrain. Uh-huh. As they're doing these dives, they discover that below certain depths, only like blue and violet wavelengths of light are making it down. And they start to see like some of the, some uh, deep sea life that was, that's, you know, previously unknown or unobserved. Cool. June 16th of 1930 is Gloria Hollister's 30th birthday. And so in celebration, um, 
Otis Barton and William Beebe let her dive in the bathysphere with uh, with the other assistant, John T. Van. Um, uh, so she sets a record for a deepest dive by a woman. Cool. And then in fall in the fall of that year, so they've just they've just barely started using using this thing. Um, but Barton donates the bathysphere to the New York Zoological Society. Um, which is like the the organization BB's been partnering with all along. So now it's no, it's no longer like his personal property. It's you know it belongs to the New York Zoological Society, but they'll continue to use it. Um, gotcha. So in 1931, diving was foiled by a number of factors. The winch needed repair, um, and then once it was repaired, there was like a bad hurricane season. Um, Meanwhile, the Great Depression is starting, and so funding is a problem. So they don't do any dives in the summer of 1931. Um, and summer is really kind of the season to, you know, to, to do this kind of ex- exploration. But in 1932, they're able to resume, uh, and they're no longer on their, like, British naval ship tugboat combination. They're launching from a single ship, uh, the Freedom. And they make a deal with NBC to do a radio broadcast of their observations. They uh, they try to install a third window in the bathysphere. Um, uh, they had originally planned for three windows. They ended up with two windows and like a steel plug. And they try to replace the steel plug with a third window, and send it down with they send it down empty uh, as a test, and it comes up almost entirely full of water. Oof. Yeah, and BB realizes when he sees that it is almost entirely full of water that that water is at whatever pressure. The water was at where where the bathysphere was when it when it filled. So this is a this is a almost five foot sphere of like highly pressurized water, and so he has everyone stand back stand back. He starts to loosen a bolt, and the bolt shoots thirty feet and gouges out a metal part of the winch. <laughs> yeah, um, good call. Yeah, uh, probably he should not have been that close either. I don't know who should have done this. Like it's it sounds a little risky to me, but anyway. Um, er- Everyone's safe. There's some damage to the winch, and they need to they need to rework the whole bathysphere. Um, so they replace the third window with the steel plug again. There were initially some problems with uh, with the reinstalled steel plug. There's there's some leaks again, although like not the, I don't think they didn't descend to that same depth. But eventually they they reinforce it and uh, have a successful unmanned test run. And nice. so they go ahead with their radio broadcast dive, uh, which is September twenty two. 1932. They've scheduled it for that date, but the seas are very rough. And uh, Otis Barton vomits on the way down. So they're just like Oof. in there with some puke. Um, oh. Yeah. And the, the sea is so rough that they're, and they're like just knocking around inside this, you know, steer, steel sphere. Um, they both end up like bruised and bleeding from being tossed around. Um, but they complete their dive. Uh, and end up broadcasting from a depth of 2,200 feet. Okay. In 1933, the bathysphere is displayed at the American Museum of Natural History and later at the uh, Century of Prog- Progress World's Fair in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Uh, where Bibi shared the Ferris Hall of Science with Auguste Picard, who held the world record for altitude uh, for his ascent into the stratosphere in a hot air balloon. Um, yeah, and great, Picard great, was... great grandfather of Jean Luc Picard. Just kidding. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> it's good. Good joke. Uh, although this is this is Picard. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I think I am. It's Picard with two C's. 
Oh, um, well, never mind then. Yeah. And Jean-Luc Picard is with one, I think, right? Uh, I think it is, yeah. yeah. I, I uh, sort of mentally made that joke to myself. Um, yeah, so um, so Picard is sponsored by the National Geographic Society for some of his work, and that gives BB the idea that idea that he may be able to get some funding that way. So he writes to uh, Gilbert Hovey Grossbrenner of the National Geographic Society to propose a sponsorship, and they agree um, contingent on BB descending to at least a half mile depth in the bathosphere. And writing two articles for them about it. Hmm. So uh, the bathosphere is in need of some repairs, um, which the funding from the National Geographic Society enables. There are like starting to be minute fractures in the quartz windows, which that sounds bad. Um, (laughs) And that whole uh, situation where it came up full of pressurized water that's damaged one of the bolts. And also while they're... uh, while they're working on it, they uh, add some upgrades, including an electric fan, woohoo, uh, uh, to be powered by the same uh, cable that's powering the spotlight. Um, okay. And uh, they're adding a barometer and a more powerful spotlight. Cool. So uh, they start testing out new dives with the renovated bathosphere. The first one, they go down four feet and start to leak and come back up. The second test, they find a problem with one of the hoses. Third test, uh, it goes down empty, but with a camera. And the camera successfully captures an image of a fish. And then in August 11, on August 11 of 1934, um, BB and Barton go down to 2,510 feet. They encounter a bunch of new species of fish, and they are using a spectroscope to measure the wavelengths of light that are vanishing as they descend. Um, and there's some like connection there with like, they're testing out hypotheses from uh, like from quantum physics. Nice. Um, yeah. As they're doing these deep dives, they're starting to, f- they're, they're finding bioluminescent fish. And apparently they did a lot of like turning the spotlight on and off, trying to like observe, you know, because like you, you need the spotlight on to kind of, see what's going on around you but if you've if you've got a bioluminescent fish in your sights you want to you want to turn the spotlight off and kind of see what you can see and uh they do the their deepest dive on august 15 of 1934 they dive to a depth of 3028 feet that's more than six times deeper than anyone else had ever been before and that is the deepest they can go because that's how long their cable is wow yeah uh, so they want to stay down there for half an hour, but the captain of the ship they're being launched from won't allow it. He pulls them up after five minutes, um, and that is the time that they uh, set their record that would stand for 15 years. Nice. Yeah. Also on August 15th, the same day they set the record, um, Barton gets back in the bathosphere uh, with Gloria Hollister, and they go down to 1,208 feet, which... Uh, sets another new record for deepest female diver um, and that record stood for about 30 years and uh, their final dive is on August 27 1934 so they had a number of descents over over the course of four years at that point BB feels that the bathosphere project is complete that you know whatever further funding he can find like he he feels like th- this this particular thing um, it has some limitations. In particular, he can't 
follow an interesting fish or, you know, whatever, because it's not self-propelling. It's just sort of get dropped down and you can, you can conceivably be dragged a little bit, but, but the limitations of the bathysphere make him think it's not worth um, sort of continuing to pursue this project. And so he moves on to other things. That's how the bathysphere project ends. Although I think it was, I think it's Beebe who um, breaks the breaks the record for deepest dive. It was not William Beebe. It was it was Otis Barton. Um, so it's it's Otis Barton who, uh, in 1949, um, breaks the record uh, with a new vessel. I guess that's a different story for a different day. I haven't read that part of the book yet. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so uh, the bathysphere um, went on display for a while, and then it was kind of warehoused for a while uh, but is now again on display at the coney island aquarium in brooklyn and a copy a replica of it also is on display at the bermuda aquarium museum and zoo um, because bermuda is where they did their work awesome so yeah and there are a few things i didn't touch on in particular um barton attempted to like make a like a like a film about this whole thing that was not especially successful. But the bathysphere, it seems like it's uh, its legacy, it comes up in like video games and stuff a lot, apparently. I'm not a big gamer, but maybe maybe you've encountered this. The idea of the bathysphere? Yeah, the idea of the bathysphere. Yeah, I mean, in, in certain kind of steampunk sort of settings or uh, particularly it's making me think of the... Uh, Bioshock games, at least Bioshock 1 and 2. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to our quiz. Um, And the theme of the quiz, I hope you'll forgive me, is deep dive. I mean, I I would expect nothing less. (laughs) I... it's embarrassing how long I worked on learning about the bathysphere before I realized that I was doing a deep dive on deep dives. Um, yeah, once I, once I realized I had to sort of commit to the theme. All right, are you ready? Yep. Okay, question one. The bathysphere descended to 3,028 feet, but the ocean goes a whole lot deeper than that. Uh, only four humans have descended to the deepest part of the deepest trench in the world, the Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific Ocean. Uh, the four humans being three scientists and one film director. Uh, but this is a math question. So uh, <laughs> geography math. To within 20% either way, how deep is that deepest part of the Mariana Trench? Uh, this is something I should know, and I do not know at all. I really don't. I'm, I'm not going to be able to get there at all. So... Uh, I'm just going to take a guess, and since I'm a mile high here, I'm going to go a mile down there. Mm. 5,280 feet. All right. You are off by a factor of, like, between, let's see, like, factor of, like, seven-ish. Um, uh, so the deepest, deepest part of the Mariana Trench is 30, that we've measured so far, is 35,853 Good lord. Yeah. So I would have accepted up to 20% either way. So uh, between, like, if you guessed somewhere in the 28,000 to 43,000 range. That is insane. That would have been close enough. Yeah. Right? Yes. So, yeah, the bathysphere went 3,000 feet deep, and it goes 10 times deeper than that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, Everest is 29,000 feet. Yeah. 
So that's deeper. That is farther below the surface than Everest goes above. Right. That is ridiculous. Yeah. You could you could put Mount Everest on the bottom of the ocean and the top of it would still be a mile below the surface. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's only only four people have um, have been down close to that to that deepest part. Um, there was a 1960 descent uh, with scientists Don Walsh and Jacques Picard, uh, the son of Auguste Picard, who we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And then James Cameron went down oh, solo. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then actually in April 2019, uh, there was a new record for deepest descent uh, set by Victor Vescovo, who went, I think, a few feet deeper than any of the others had gone. Nice. All right. So uh, so we're fr- from depth to diving. Um, in competitive diving, the diver's body is supposed to assume one of four positions. I don't want to make you do mental gymnastics, so I'll tell you that two of the four are straight and free. For five points each, can you name the other two? Okay. The other two positions in the diving? The other two positions uh, that your body can assume during the flight portion of the dive in competitive diving so you said free and straight yes there was a hint in there yes i'm pretty sure one of them is tuck Mm -hmm. and i know you said mental gymnastics so i'm gonna i'm gonna guess that that's the hint yes and think of gymnastics things I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Okay, so it's not rhythmic gymnastics. It's not floor routine. It's parallel parallel rings, bars, vault. Could be vault. Yeah, I'll go with tuck and vault. Ah, that's a that's a pretty good guess. Uh, tuck is correct. Uh, vault is incorrect. The other the other. Um, uh, body position is pike. Um, pike. Which is, yeah, oh, which is one yeah. of the standard positions in, in gymnastics. Um, I, I, I knew that. Yeah. I, I become an expert in diving every four years and then immediately forget <laughs> it all again. Don't we all, though? Right. <laughs> um, but that's coming right. up this year. I love the Olympics. Anyway, yeah. moving on. All right, so you're at five points. Um, Oof. Maybe I calibrated a little hard this week. I'm sorry. Um, It's okay. Bring it on. All right. Uh, Question three. Um, From 1991 to 1998, a recurring interstitial on the show Saturday Night Live would feature soothing music and natural scenery with scrolling text read out loud, offering sentiments such as, the face of a child can say it all, especially the mouth part of the face. (laughs) And... Before you criticize someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, you'll be a mile from them, and you'll have their shoes. shoes. (laughs) Um, I'm looking for the title of this recurring interstitial. I will offer five points for a partial title, or ten points if you can think of the full name of the segment, including the name of the comedian. Uh, Okay, I believe that's Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. You're correct. Yeah. I love those. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, I suppose that tradition has sort of been carried on with shower thoughts uh, or, oh, what is it? What are they called? With Nick Offerman, he he did a series of things oh, like that. Um, I know what you mean, but I'm only thinking of the wrong thing, which is like the, was it Between Two Palms interviews with Zach? 
however you say his last name. Oh, Zach Galifianakis. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it it is shower thoughts with Nick Offerman. Yeah. Okay. Or deep thoughts or whatever. Yeah. All right. So you're at 15 points. Here comes question four. Uh, the memoir The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Jean Dominique Bobby describes his experience before and after a massive stroke that left him with locked-in syndrome. He describes his condition using the metaphor of the diving bell. Due to the syndrome, Bobby had to use an unconventional approach to writing the book. How was he able to communicate the words? Believe someone with locked-in syndrome can basically only control, like, their eyes. So I'm going to say that he communicated via blinking. That is correct. Um, There was a good film adaptation of the book as well. Um, And I've read the book. It's remarkable. But yes, he he worked with an assistant who would read a sequence of letters um, by order of frequency. um, And he would blink. He ended up only being able to use one eye. The other one they had to, um, they had to, keep shut due to irrigation issues um yeah so he he could only really use one eye um and he would he would blink when she got to the letter the next letter that he wanted um and that was how he communicated everything yeah like Uh, that is incredibly impressive and sounds utterly tedious yeah and just heartbreaking yeah um oh my gosh yeah but nice work uh you are at 25 points and question five uh the world's deepest lake is located in siberia name the lake which contains more water than all the great lakes combined and goes to a depth of more than five thousand feet this is one of those facts that stuck with me since like seventh grade geography and i hope it's right otherwise i learned this fact wrong i believe that's lake baikal you are so correct yeah i connect it to nothing I, i was like is that too hard (laughs) <laughs> too obscure and then i was like no nah, kyle was on the tournament of champions he's got this <laughs> all right <laughs> so you're at 35 points uh how many would you like to wager let's go with it's a significant christmas number i don't know let's bet 25 for all december right. 25th all right so here is the final otis barton had plans to make a film about the wonders of the deep sea but his efforts were largely unsuccessful, and someone else is much better known for combining filmmaking and marine biology. Who is the French oceanographer who won the 1956 Palme d'Or for his documentary, The Silent World? I believe this is the person who I always have to tell myself not to say Clouseau, because that's a very different character in a very different setting. Um, I believe it's Jacques Cousteau. You are correct. Yes. Yes! Alright. Did it. Yeah. Uh, um, I th- at first I thought that question was was veering dangerously close to the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that that would have been an interesting place to take that one. Um, uh, yeah. No, I, for, for some reason, as a teenager, I could not keep straight uh, Jacques Cousteau this is embarrassing. Marcel Marceau. <laughs> who is neither an oceanographer nor a filmmaker, but it's a mime. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, the mime. Uh, That's yes. awesome. Yeah. All right, so you have 60 points. Nice work. Yeah! Uh, we're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, nice! Yeah, so on Monday's game, in the um, Tales of the City category in the Jeopardy round, the $200 clue is Murders in the Rue Morgue. Right. Uh, and that's a tale by Edgar Allan Poe. On the Tuesday game, in the Soft Words category in the Jeopardy round at the $1,000 clue, it's In Poe's The Raven, her whispered name is heard in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And that is Lenore. Lenore. So twice his works came up. And then there were two other times. I can't, for some reason, I, I remember there being two other times, but I can't find one of them. But somewhere related to his works were in there. On the Thursday game, in the Double Jeopardy round, in the uh, It's the Gilgood Movie of the Year, Mm-hmm. This one is a bit more distantly related, but the $400 clue, it's talking about the Tempest and the character in the Tempest named Prospero, uh, and Prospero is also the name of the uh, main character in Mask of the Red Death. Right. I believe, if I remember correctly. So, like, three different things kind of all this week pointing back to uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So yeah. I decided that's who I'm going to go with, also because I really don't know much about him at all. At least I didn't before this. So that's who we're talking about. Nice. Uh, so here we go. He was born Edgar Poe in Boston on January 19th, 1809. He, his parents, Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins Poe and David Poe Jr., were both actors. Uh, he had an older brother, William Henry Leonard Poe, and a younger sister named Rosalie Poe. He was born, like I said, in 1809. Just in 1810, his father abandoned their family. And in 1811, his mother died from uh, tuberculosis. Uh, At that point, he was taken into the home of John Allen, who uh, was a successful merchant in Richmond, Virginia, dealing in a number of different uh, commodities like tobacco, cloth, tombstones, and slaves. So really stand up to there. Um, But they were the, the Allens acted as a foster family and even uh, gave their name to him. So when they, they took him in, um, they had him baptized and they, and they named re, kind of renamed him Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, although he was never actually like legally or formally adopted. So Poe's childhood, uh, he, he grew up, his uh, foster mother uh, and him like got along well and had a good relationship. Uh, him and his father, foster father uh, kind of went back and forth between uh like really good almost spoiling and being very very uh aggressive with his discipline Mm. you know not uncommon of the time certainly with fathers and their sons um in 1815 the allens went to britain and uh poe went to a number of different schools uh for a little while he was in scotland and then he studied at a boarding school in chelsea and then he entered Reverend John Bransby's Manor House School hmm. uh, after after that for a couple of couple more years. They went back to Richmond in 1820, uh, so he's only 11 years old at this point. Four years later, in 1824, he joined the Richmond Youth Honor Guard and was part of the celebration of the visit of the Marquis de Lafayette um, when hmm. he came back to the United States and, and kind of like 
toured and checked things out and saw how we were doing. In 1825, John Allen's uncle, William Galt, died and left a huge inheritance to John Allen, several acres of real estate, which at the time was estimated at $750,000, which is equivalent to $17 million today. So big, big old windfall for John Allen. So Poe's foster family, very wealthy, well-to-do, established. So in 1826, Edgar Allan Poe uh, registered at the University of Virginia to study ancient and modern languages. Uh, And a little bit before that, it is speculated that he became engaged to Sarah Elmira Royster, who was a friend of his in Richmond. Uh, but he went to university and they lost touch uh, while he was there. This was in the early years of the University of Virginia, and um, it was founded by Thomas Jefferson, who had a lot of like high ideals of the Enlightenment. They had very strict rules against gambling, horses, guns, tobacco, and alcohol. Um, but of course, as we know, college students love to follow those rules. Jefferson also had the had the idea of like giving a lot of freedom to the students, so they got to choose their courses of study, um, which is nice. Uh, they also were given freedom to determine where and how they lived, and uh, the onus was on them to report all wrongdoing and hold each other accountable. So there was a lot of chaos and a pretty high dropout rate from the university at that time. Like I said, he lost touch with, with Sarah Royster, and during that time he also... Uh, uh, became estranged from his uh, foster father, John Allen. And it was over gambling debts. Uh, Poe claimed he he liked to to sell it as Allen hadn't given him uh, sufficient funds to register for classes and buy materials and, and, you know, pay for living space. But in reality, it was really uh, these debts that Poe accrued through gambling and his, his increasing dependence on alcohol. And in fact... Allen did send additional money and clothes, but uh, Poe's debts increased rather than decreased when as that money arrived. After only a year, he gave up on university, but he didn't feel welcome returning to Richmond because he, he and his foster father were at loggerheads. And uh, he also found out that Sarah Royster had married um, a man named Alexander Shelton, during that time so poe didn't really have anything to return to aside from like his foster mother who he got along with but uh that would be hard to to go back to so uh instead he decided to move to boston uh which was where he was born uh a little little side here um you know a lot of a lot of poe is associated with baltimore right and up to this point he's never even really been to baltimore (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and it it was an interesting thing to me to see how much of his life was actually not spent in baltimore um, given his strong association with that city but anyway in 1827 uh he moved to boston he did some odd jobs and and got a job as a clerk and newspaper writer um and that was when he uh started using the first of a number of pseudonyms that he would have and it was henri la renette and so this is kind of the start of his working life he essentially had three different career paths in his life. One was writing, which we see as a newspaper writer. The other was publishing. Um, and the third was uh, military. After only a couple of months in Boston, Poe found himself unable to support himself, and so he enlisted in the army. 
using another fake name, Edgar A. Perry. He also claimed that he was 22, even though he was only 18. Hmm. And he was stationed at Fort Independence in Boston. That same year, though, he released his first book. Uh, do you happen to know the trivia of what was Poe's first publication? Ooh, I do not know. Uh, it is Tamerlane and Other Poems, a 40-page collection. And he didn't put his name on it. He didn't even put a fake name on it. He just, on the byline, put, by a Bostonian. Hmm. it's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't think he ever uh, gave the reason for his reticent to, reticence to use his real name um, on a number of things. Yeah, so I don't know. Hmm. Um, only 50 copies were printed. Gained very little attention from it, but it is technically his first publication. So I've seen that trivia question in a number of places. Tamerlane and Other Poems. Tamerlane in, and Other Poems. Yep, in okay. 1827. Uh, he served in, in the army for a couple of years. After two years, he had uh, risen in the ranks. He became a sergeant major for artillery, which was the highest rank that a non-commissioned officer could be given, so he had no more upward mobility in the army there. And he sought to end his five-year enlistment early. So he went to his uh, commanding officer and kind of like laid everything out before him, told him his real name, told him his circumstances, told him what was going on and what he wanted. And his commanding officer was actually, from what I understand, fairly understanding. He said that he would allow Poe to be discharged if he reconciled with his foster father, hmm. um, and if he found a replacement to serve the rest of Poe's enlisted commitment. Hmm. So Poe wrote, an wrote a letter to John Allen, uh, John Allen did not care. <laughs> he was unsympathetic, and he, he basically just didn't write back. So Poe was kind of stuck where he was for a while. And then Francis Allen, Poe's uh, foster mother, died in February of 1829. And Poe, it, it looks like Poe didn't even know that she was sick or dying, and that John Allen hadn't even written to tell him that. And Poe had gone there to visit, gone to Richmond to visit, and uh, arrived the day after her burial, which is pretty tragic. So John Allen possibly uh, was feeling a little more sympathetic with, you know, the passing of his wife. Uh, he agreed to support Edgar Allan Poe's uh, attempt to be discharged, so Poe was able to be discharged in April of 1829 uh, after finding a replacement. Uh, his purpose in being discharged was so that he could uh, go to West Point and become an officer because he wanted to keep moving up. So in the interim between being discharged from the army and going to West Point, Poe moved to Baltimore for a time to stay with his widowed aunt, Maria Clem, uh, her daughter, Virginia, and his uh, biological brother, Henry, as well as his uh, biological grandmother, Elizabeth Poe. During that time, Poe published his second book, Alaroff, Tamerlane and Minor Poems, um, which is another, you know, another collection of poems. Mm -hmm. In 1830, he went to West Point and uh, entered as a cadet. Also during this time, John Allen married, got remarried, and over the course of the next uh, year or so, Poe and Allen continued to fight and continued to 
to become more contentious in their relationship. Poe didn't like that John Allen had remarried at all, of course, because like you, you know, you're not being respectful to my mother and that. Mm-hmm. And also, it turns out John Allen had a number of children out of affairs that Poe took issue with as well. So uh, they argued a lot, and eventually um, John Allen disowned Edgar Allan Poe, so he was done. He's like, we're finished. Also during this time, Poe realized that being a, an officer was not for him. Uh, he decided that this was not the path he wanted to take, so he decided to purposely get court-martialed. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, and on uh, February 8th, 1831, he was tried for gross neglect of duty and disobedience of orders for refusing to attend formations, classes, or church. So basically, he just stopped doing anything uh, in order to get court-martialed, and he strategically pleaded not guilty so that they would dismiss him, because he knew he'd be found guilty, and by trying to fight it and then being found guilty in a court-martial he would have to be dismissed. So we see Edgar Allan Poe as kind of a, an impulsive man, right? He's mm-hmm. a young man. He's driven a lot by his desires. You know, he was orphaned at a young age, but taken in by a wealthy family. And so he, uh, he, he seems to make decisions that don't necessarily take the future into account. Yeah. Um, so he is dismissed from West Point and he go- moves to U- New York where he released his third volume of poems, which was simply called Poems. And that was in 1831. Um, it is dedicated to the U.S. Corps of Cadets because uh, his some of his friends at West Point pitched in, you know, 75 cents a piece or whatever to help raise the money to publish it. And so he dedicated it to them. And it included a num- uh, number of his older, longer poems like Tamerlane and Alaraf, but also some newer poems as well. After that publication, he returned to Baltimore to his aunt, brother, and cousin uh, that he had been living with. Uh, His older brother, Henry, had been in ill health, apparently uh, in part due to alcoholism, and he died in August of 1831. Edgar is in Baltimore in 1831, and having pretty much cut all ties and all possibility of being in the military, he has sort of chosen a life of financial difficulty for himself because he knows that he wants to write. So after his brother's death, he tries to take on uh, a more like purposeful uh, career path as a writer, but he was attempting to live on that alone, which was kind of hard to do at the time. Uh, there was not international copyright law, uh, so as a new writer in America, he was competing with a lot of um, British classics and the bigger names coming from Europe that American publishers could just publish whenever they wanted because they didn't have to deal with copyright law. So he was competing with a lot of that. Uh, the industry was also hurt by the Panic of 1837, which was which I briefly mentioned when talking about Tammany Hall. And this was kind of an early, the early days of American periodicals. So there wasn't a lot of like consistent support for publishing. And so, so it was just kind of tough. After his first three publications of poetry, Poe decided to turn to prose, and he started with a few stories and began working on his only drama, which is called Politian. The Baltimore Saturday Visitor awarded him a prize in October of 1833 for his short story, Message Found in a Bottle. 
Uh, and that brought uh, attention from John Kennedy, who was a rich Baltimorean and who helped Poe get some of his stuff published and, and put into to periodicals um, like the Southern Literary Messenger of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, so Poe uh, became the assistant editor of the Southern Literary Messenger in 1835. But after only a few weeks, he was fired for being drunk on the job. So Poe went back to Baltimore. He's bouncing around a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when he went back to Baltimore, he obtained a license to marry his cousin, Virginia Clem, who he had been mm-hmm. living with from time to time. Uh, it's unknown if they were married at that time. That was in September of 1835. He was 26 and she was 13. Ugh. This is a thing that I knew about Ed- Edgar Allan Poe uh, prior to this deep dive. And yeah. 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 I mean, I don't. I don't like to yuck anybody's yums, but uh, no, there, 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 are, there, there, there are there are lines things that are over the line. Yeah, there there is a line that can be crossed. Um, yeah. So he he went back to the the head editor of the Southern Literary Messenger and promised good behavior, uh, and so he he uh, he was hired back, and so he moved back to Richmond and brought Virginia and her mother, which I now realize saying going back to Richmond with Virginia can be a confusing sentence. So he remained there for a couple of years until 1837, a period of good stability in his life. And while working there, he published several poems, book reviews, and critiques, and also stories in that paper. So at this point, he starts becoming a critic, which by the time he died, that was really what he was best known for. Hmm. He was best known as a, as a literary critic and reviewer. In 1836, on May 16th, 1836, he and Virginia held a formal uh, Presbyterian wedding uh, with a witness falsely attesting that cl- that uh, Virginia's age was 21. <laughs> Oops. Yep. Ugh. Feels good. So in 1838, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket was published and widely reviewed. That is Poe's only complete novel. And so a little bit about that story, uh, it's, it's Arthur Gordon Pym uh, stows away on a whaling ship called the Grampus. You know, it's a sailing adventure story. He goes through shipwreck, mutiny, cam- cannibalism, you know, traveling around the world and going on adventures. Uh, some people really enjoyed it. Other people criticized it for being really derivative of other works of the type and of the time. So, you know, it, it, gave, it had mixed reviews. Uh, but it is his only complete uh, novel. In 1839, he published Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque in two volumes, uh, but did not get much money from it and also had mixed reviews. In in that same year, in 1839, he left the Southern Literary Messenger and became the assistant editor of Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. Uh, and then after about a year there, he left and uh, became an assistant at Graham's Magazine. Uh, so again, we see this kind of like uh, unstable life for Poe, just constantly moving and looking for the next thing. Uh, in 1840, he published a prospectus uh, planning to start his own journal called The Stylus, uh, but it never took off. It never happened. Also at this time, he was trying to uh, secure a government position in the administration of President Tyler, trying to get, you know, one of those uh, those spoils positions, and you know, through some of his friends, uh, but he ended up missing a meeting, probably because he was drunk, although he claimed to have been sick, uh, and so nothing panned out there. In January of 1842, 
Virginia showed the first signs of tuberculosis while singing and playing the piano in their home. After that episode, she only partially recovered and Poe got more heavily into drink. He left Graham's magazine and tried to find a new position somewhere, again, trying to get a government post too, but that didn't work out. Or he went back to New York, where he briefly worked for the Evening Mirror uh, before becoming editor of the Broadway Journal, and later he became its owner. During this time, Virginia was getting sicker and sicker and, and never really recovered. She just kind of kept deteriorating, and uh, Poe was having a harder time dealing with it. Through the Broadway Journal, he kind of put himself on the bad side of everyone else by publicly accusing Henry Wadsworth Longfellow of plagiarism. <laughs> um, and Classy. but Yeah, Longfellow never responded, so it was just kind of like him throwing out an accusation and, and everyone being like, come on, dude. <laughs> um, in 1845... He published The Raven in the Evening Mirror, and this was like really the first big popular thing for him. It, it was immediately very popular, mm -hmm. um, and it made him a household name as a poet. You know, up to this point, he'd been a, a publicist and a, you know, a critic. However, he was only played, paid $9 for its publication. <laughs> um, the Broadway Journal failed in 1846. They moved to the Bronx into a cottage that is now known as the Edgar Allan Poe Cottage. Uh, so if you go there, that is the home that he moved into in 1846. So really, he didn't live there very long, and Virginia didn't live there very long either. Virginia died on January 30th, 1847. And much of his writing that includes themes of death of a beautiful woman probably has to do with the death of Virginia. Yeah. You know, she, she died, and obviously she was much younger than him and a family member feels really icky in a lot of ways not that this is redeeming of that but by all accounts they really did love each other and were mm -hmm. like very happy and committed in their marriage that's probably gonna happen when you marry a 13 year old because they're very impressionable and yeah. that's still icky and gross but you know there were there were no no real suggestions of impropriety uh yes. save i guess i mean i guess a happy incestuous marriage to a child is better than a you know, right I, again i'm not i'm not justifying not trying to say oh it was okay because not any of yeah. that yeah but at but least it, it, it could be worse yeah she, yeah she she was very happy with him and looked up to him and he you know very much loved her and all of that um yeah there was one uh, incident, or I guess like scandal, where there was another poet named Elizabeth Ellet who became like infatuated with with Poe and became very jealous of his not only his relationship obviously with his wife but also with uh, another poet named Francis Osgood who was very good friends with Edgar Allan Poe. So. He's he's friends with this with uh, Francis Osgood. He also met another woman named Sarah Whitman. Like they were, they became friends. And Elizabeth Ellet became jealous of of these friendships that that Poe had with other people, and basically just started rumors and uh, suggested that there were indiscretions on Poe's part with other women and all that. Just trying to trying to stir up trouble and I guess potentially make a make a, a path for her to get into his good graces or whatever but really the only thing that came of it is that 
Francis Osgood's husband threatened to sue Ellet. <laughs> and so she retracted all of her statements and, and gave an apology. Little aside there. All right, so um, Virginia dies in, in January of 1847. And I mentioned Sarah Helen Whitman, a woman that he met um, a few years prior. He kind of attempted to court her, but didn't really work out because he was becoming more of an alcoholic and more erratic in his behavior and that sort of thing. So then Poe returned to Richmond and uh, got back together with his childhood sweetheart, Sarah Royster, who was at this point widowed. But that didn't last terribly long because on October 3rd, 1849, uh, Poe was found delirious in the streets of Baltimore, uh, needing immediate assistance, and he died on Sunday, October 7th, 1849. Hmm. He was not coherent enough to explain how he was found in this state and what was wrong, he is reported to have repeatedly called out the name Reynolds on the night before his death, though no one knows what he, who he was referring to. And some people claim that his final words were, Lord help my poor soul, although hmm. all records of his death, including his death certificate, have been lost. Yeah, there, there are a lot of there's speculation as to what it could have been. Heart disease, epilepsy, syphilis, cholera, rabies, who knows. Yep, mm. that was yeah. That was it. He died, and immediately after his death, one of his literary rivals, Rufus Griswold, wrote a very slanted uh, obituary under a pseudonym, which painted uh, Poe as you know a madman, walking the streets in madness or melancholy, with lips moving in indistinct curses or with eyes upturned in passionate prayers. So that kind of painted the public perception of Poe pretty quickly after that. Um, he he signed it Ludwig and published it in the New York Tribune on the day that Poe was buried. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. And then he went on to write a biography, like a, a longer biographical article about Poe, which again was like really just mean <laughs> and and not totally accurate about, you know, trying to depict him as a drunken drug-addled madman. But really, most of his claims have been disputed up to this, you know, at this point in history. We know that the, most of that was made up. And one more thing that Griswold did, he convinced Poe's mother-in-law to sign away the rights to all of Poe's works right after Poe's death. Uh, and so Griswold published the collected works, which to me is like, if you hate this guy so much, why not just get rid of him? He published Poe's collected works and added his own biography into that publication I guess to I don't know I don't <laughs> I don't get it but maybe to tarnish the memory while you know keep the memory alive but also tarnish it I guess yeah. I don't know yeah so that's that's Poe's life um, so his his the his works are best known as Gothic right in the Gothic style yeah. dealing with things uh, like you know death darkness uh, romanticism that kind of thing uh, he was opposed to transcendentalism. He referred to the followers of Transcendentalism as Frog Pondians and <laughs> said that their work was their writings were metaphor run mad and lapsing into obscurity for obscurity's sake, which he did not appreciate. He also, uh, you know, through his literary critique and everything, he disliked didactism, which is the instructional art or or art that is meant to be appreciated both artistically and as a way of like educating the audience. He did not like that and he didn't really care for allegory either. So his his works were meant to 
you know, have the meaning just below the surface, mm-hmm. but not meant to like, you know, be particularly metaphorical or anything like that. Uh, he had huge influence, particularly with a couple of the works that I'm going to uh, talk about a little bit. He also wrote some things on physics and cosmology, although he did not use the scientific method in any of his scientific thoughts. Mm -hmm. So it was all just kind of intuitive reasoning, which at this point, uh, like his writing uh, Eureka uh, has been found to be like, just not true because Mm -hmm. he was just kind of pondering when he came up with it. And he was also very interested in cryptography, which uh, has influenced a number of of American writers since then. Uh, So I mentioned... Uh, a few works, like his first work, you know, Tamerlane and Other Poems. I mentioned the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, because that's his only completed novel. Uh, and then there are two works that came up in The Clues in Jeopardy this week. One was Murders in the Rue Morgue, and one was The Raven. So I'm going to talk a little bit about those works right now, because those are also important and seminal. So M- The Murders in the Rue Morgue uh, is a short story. Uh, published in Graham's Magazine in 1841, and it has been described by many as the first modern detective story. And actually, the word detective did not really exist at that point, so Poe did not call it that. It's, you know, looking back, we say, oh, it's one of the first detective stories. Uh, The main character is... Well, I shouldn't say the main character. There are two main characters. C. Auguste Dupin is a man in Paris who solves the murder. Uh, the Murders of the Rue Morgue. And the narrator is his friend, whose name I don't believe we get. It's just the narrator uh, telling the story of Dupin figuring this out, which uh, we can see a clear parallel in Sherlock Holmes, right? Watson is the narrator, uh, Mm -hmm. the good friend of Sherlock Holmes, who is the one who actually does the solving of mysteries. Uh, and Dupin shows up in a couple of other stories later on in Poe's oeuvre, um, The Mystery of Marie Roger and The Purloined Letter, which is one of the more uh, better-known works of mm-hmm. Poe. Yeah. So just quick, like quick little synopsis of the plot, Murders in the Rue Morgue. So Dupin and the narrator meet in an old mansion... There's a there's a backstory hinted at where they're both kind of just like seeking to leave their past uh, behind, but there's not much more than that, uh, which really fits into the gothic ideal. Dupin and the narrator read uh, newspaper accounts of a baffling double murder. Madame Lespanet, I'm really bad at French, <laughs> and her daughter have been found dead in their home in the Rue Morgue, which is a fictional street in Paris. Uh, there are a number of like clues that are found. The mother was found in the yard behind the house, broken bones, and her throat was cut. The daughter was found strangled to death upside down in the ch- and stuffed into the chimney. So pretty grisly and gruesome. The murders occurred in a fourth floor room that was locked from the inside. And there are tufts of hair that don't appear to um, belong to humans and some gold coins. Or witnesses heard two voices at the time of the murder one male in French, but disagreed on the language spoken by the other, and so uh, there's a lot of, like, question and uh, a bunch of red herrings in there as well. Police 
assume that, you know, the murder couldn't have happened, they couldn't have killed them in the room and then left because it's a locked room, the windows are closed and everything. But Dupin takes an interest and begins looking into things, um, and through his deduction, he figures out that the murders were committed by an orangutan. He figures out through reading the newspaper articles, also reading, you know, uh, published works about animals in the world and things in other places. So again, we're, we're getting hints of Sherlock Holmes and the encyclopedias and everything that he keeps on his shelves. And so he determines that an orangutan killed the women and he places a, or an advertisement in a local newspaper asking if anyone has lost such an animal and would be willing to pay a reward to get it back. And soon a sailor shows up who they had already depended had already determined that it was a sailor based on certain clues shows up, offers to pay the reward, uh, but Dupin, you know, demands that he tell him the circumstances of the murder. So uh, the sailor confesses, essentially. And the person who had been wrongly uh, arrested uh, is released from custody, and uh, things work out. And that's the end. Uh, so, you know, it's a bizarre murder with strange circumstances, and we see this uh, person who is not a policeman come in and, you know, through deductive reasoning, figure it out. And so that's the Murders in the Rue Morgue, and it, like I said, it is widely considered one of the first detective stories. Mm -hmm. uh, the other work that was mentioned is The Raven. Very important piece. Like like I said, it was the work that um, gave him kind of national renown as a poet and as a writer. And it was first published in 1845, and it tells of a talking raven's mysterious visit to a distraught lover tracing the man's slow fall into madness, right? And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's actually a very long poem, mm -hmm. which I discovered in eighth grade English class. We were told to pick a poem and memorize it. And I was like, I've heard oh, of that. No. I'll go ahead and pick the raven. And then I got it and I like printed it out and it was very long. And my teacher was like, you can do the first stanza. I was like, okay, thank you. Oh. Should have gone with William <laughs> Carlos Williams. This is just to say. Yeah, I don't know that I should have. <laughs> All right, no, 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 the Raven is a much better choice. Yeah. Anyway, so um, it follows an unnamed narrator. Uh, the first line, which uh, was a question when I was on the show, or the uh, the first five words are "Once upon a midnight dreary." So the first, uh, the the first stanza, just to get an idea of like the meter and the rhyme scheme and everything is once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore while I nodded nearly napping suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping rapping at my chamber door tis some visitor I muttered tapping at my chamber door only this and nothing more so that it, the whole poem follows that kind of almost musical flow um, and that mm -hmm. that um, that rhyme scheme and, and meter so when he opens the door, nothing's there, uh, but it excites his soul to burning. He closes the door, the tapping is repeated, but he realizes it's coming from a window, not the door. Uh, so he opens it and a raven flies in, paying no attention. He uh, goes and perches on a bust of Pallas, which is another name, the epithet for Athena. So going into, again, the Gothic kind of setting, there's this, there's this bust of this, you know, ancient goddess in this guy's room as he's just lamenting so the bird the only thing the bird says is nevermore and so he asks after the bird's name and it says nevermore and he keeps asking him questions 
and the bird keeps responding nevermore. And eventually, uh, he sits there in silence for a minute, mind wanders back to his lost love named Lenore, and he just kind of like slowly goes crazy. Uh, he gets angry at the bird, he starts imagining demons and angels and around him and commands the bird to leave and go back to the underworld. And the narrator's final admission is that his soul is trapped beneath the raven's shadow and shall be lifted nevermore. So the poem ends with the bird still sitting there on the bust of Pallas and the narrator saying that he is trapped hmm. underneath the raven's shadow. So yeah, there's Edgar yeah. Allan Poe. And I talked about that for yeah. a long time. And and he has a bunch of other works, obviously. Mm-hmm. Cask yeah. of Amanantiado and Mask of the Red Death, Follow the House of Usher, a whole bunch of other stuff that is important uh-huh. literary, but the the ones that I mentioned are a bit more trivia adjacent. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Telltale Heart comes Right, to Telltale mind. Heart, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that too. Lots of poems. Yeah. Anyway. That brings us to the quiz. Alright, here we go. So the quiz is the, the 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 title of it is Murders, Rue, Morgue, Raven, Poe. And we're gonna go through in that order. So Okay. Question number one. Elizabeth Short was brutally murdered in January of 1947, and her bisected body left in the Limert Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. The bar- bizarre circumstances and unsolved nature of this cape- case has kept it in the American imagination uh, ever since. What did Short come to be called? Also, what did the case come to be called? It's the same name. And this name is thought to be a reference to a film noir title from the previous year. I know this one. I don't know when I learned this one, um, but it seems to come up a lot. Uh, That is The Black Dahlia. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, The Black Dahlia, which is uh, just what the the people in the neighborhood came to refer to her as, as this, you know, investigation continued uh, and everything. It is thought to have originated with the title of The Blue Dahlia, which was a 1946 crime film noir. So, yeah, good job. Thanks. Ten points. Ooh. Question two. The word rue can have a number of different meanings in different languages. We can rue the day that something happens, as in regretting or mm-hmm. or being mournful of... As we see in Murders in the Rue Morgue, it's also a word for, you know, street... Uh, Mm -hmm. in French. Perhaps not the second meaning, but the first meaning led author Suzanne Collins to name a character Rue in her famous trilogy. What is the name of that trilogy, which is also the name of the first book in the trilogy, which features the character Rue, who dies a tragic death and becomes something of an uh, inspiration for the main character to bring down the whole system? Uh, that's the Hunger Games. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is the Hunger Games. Uh, mm-hmm. And Suzanne Collins is, of course, she she's not shy about naming characters certain things based on how they fit into her story. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah, good job. Thanks. I did back when the Hunger Games movies were coming out. I did like a Palm Sunday sermon that touched on the Hunger Games. Anyway. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I got to bring in those youngins. Got to make it yeah. make it relevant. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're at 20 points. You're two for two. Question number three. 
A person who examines bodies and works in a morgue is known as a coroner. The term and position came about uh, in late medieval England. Similar to what we call it now, what was the original word for this job? It's only a few letters different, and it showed that these people worked on behalf of the king's interest. It's similar to the word coroner. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yes. Original original word for the occupation coroner. Mm-hmm. Only a few letters different and showed they worked on behalf of the king's interest. Is that right? Yep. And it's a, did I understand that it's like an archaic word that's not used anymore? Or was that? Yeah, we, we don't call them this anymore. Nothing's coming to me. Um... I'm going to guess coronary, but I don't think that's correct. Okay, uh, it is a crowner. Oh, okay. Because they are representatives of the crown. Got it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which now makes a... the, the word coroner make a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Because, like, that that prefix has nothing to do with death, you know, or, like, bodies. But for, you know, the Latin root of crown... Yeah. Makes more sense. Yeah, sure does. That was interesting. I came across that and was like, huh. All right. Number four. Ravens feature significantly in many mythologies throughout the world. The ancient Chinese believed that they brought bad weather. Certain Native American traditions saw it as a trickster who played a role in creation. What two European gods of different pantheons each had a pair of pet ravens? One named them Phobos and Demos, which mean fear and terror, and the other named them Hugin and Munin, which mean thought and memory. So I'm looking for two answers, five points each. All right. Um, so I remember that there is a god with a pair of ravens in Norse mythology, and I am not totally confident about which one it is, but I think it's Odin. I'm going to go with Odin for okay. one. Uh, the other, I didn't know had a pair of ravens ravens but i know that phobos and demas are the moons of mars so i'm going to say mars and you're 100 percent correct yeah Woo-hoo! uh phobos and demos are, are greek and so those names go with uh aries but mars right. and aries are the same yeah. god so you're you're All right, right. Th- like thanks uh, yeah. for your flexibility on no that. you're you're 100 yeah. right like and the moons are called phobos and demos and the planet is called mars so uh, yeah. yeah, I yeah. I, I, I had registered to me before that those were Greek Greek moon names and a Latin planet name, and I forgot to forgot to reassess. It's, I think I, yeah. I don't I personally don't care because they're, they're the same exact thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a- uh, Ares had his two pet uh, ravens, and Odin also had his two pet ravens. So good job. Yes. Thanks. All right, that brings us to number five. So in recent popular culture, particularly a movie that has come out in the last month, an on-screen bromance has left many younger viewers desiring a more meaningful, intimate relationship between two characters. Who are these two characters? One who is, quote, a hell of a pilot, and the other who is, quote, a traitor. All right, I've got it. Um, so as I was trying to remember the... Uh, the five words that were the the sequence of the quiz, um, and I uh, I sort of tuned out for a second and miss, sure. missed the beginning <laughs> of the question. Um, but remembering that this question is Poe, um, and thinking about recent movies, um, I assume we're talking about the most recent Star Wars trilogy, and we're talking about Poe 
and I believe his name is Finn. That is correct. Yes. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of people, and I said younger viewers because really it's mostly among like millennials and younger who are you know shipping Finpo who are yep. saying like yeah that's what they want to yeah. see. Please don't email us fan fiction though. <laughs> don't do that. And I'm not saying that in a sarcastic way. I'm saying that in a hundred percent serious way. I do not do not want to read that. Um, but yeah, yeah, Finn and Poe, nice job. All right, Thanks. so you have 40 points going into the final uh, all right let's see i think you finished with 65 last time is that right sure that sounds right okay all right i'm gonna wager 26 points all right oh yeah get up there nice yeah. all right um there is more than one possible correct answer to this question a group of crows is called a murder however a group of ravens is known by another name, or one of a few other names. They're not quite so macabre, but they're still not nice, and perhaps a bit secretive. Give me any of those words that mean a group of ravens. I, I've got a word coming to mind, and I don't know if it's correct, but I don't know. When something bubbles up, you kind of have to go with it. Um... I'm going to say a conspiracy of ravens. And that is correct, yes. Woo! <laughs> yeah, the other the other one that's more common, I mean, I'm sure you could call them anything like a flock or whatever, but for <laughs> ravens specifically, it's either conspiracy or an unkindness. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah. Well, there you go. Look at that. 66 points. All right. Coming is that the highest strong. score we've had? So it, far, it might not be. It might be. I don't know. We'd have to listen back. I keep saying we're going to keep track of that, and then I don't. Yeah. Well, yeah. All right. Great Good job. Quiz. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to have spent time looking at something that was not war adjacent, you know, because I realized yeah. I, I, I've been doing that a lot for our dives, so I, I'm, yeah. I wanted to get in a little something, something different. Yeah. Well, I'm terrible on military history, so uh, dives on war-adjacent things are, you know... Uh, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> it's helping me, sure. um, but I, I hear you on wanting to branch out. Yeah, no, that was that was fun. I was, like, trying to think what you could possibly be getting ready to... Add, as we were still on the Edgar Allan Poe deep dive, I was thinking, like, what's the quiz going to be on? And please don't let it be five questions about the Baltimore Ravens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I purposely avoided that. I was like, um... I could. I could really do that, but no, I, did, I, did, I kept yeah. away from the Baltimore Ravens. All right. Well, thank you. I, mm -hmm. uh, I know they exist, and that's about it. They were in the Super Bowl. Yes, thanks to, uh, thanks to our recent Learned League question, right? Yep. And Beyonce performed, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they blew the electricity, right? They, there was like a blackout. Yes. Um, I remember that, because I was watching that. Yep. Um, all yep. right. It was the Harbowl. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, that's our podcast. Thanks for spending your time with us. May your minds be quick and your brothers be quick.